Okay, we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 5 this morning, continuing on in our series in Isaiah. Uh, I get interspersed with uh, Pastor Rob. It's kind of like, I told him, it's kind of like we're playing good cop, bad cop. Pastor Rob gives you the good news and John and then... uh, I'm the bad cop, and I come with Isaiah. Not that this word is bad, but sometimes uh, some of the Hebrew prophets can be challenging. So let's um, let's read the first seven verses, the uh, the parable of the vineyard. Read along with me. Let me sing now for my well beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile field. He dug it all around, removed its stone, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, Judged between me and my vineyard, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its walls. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Hmm. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah is delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Everybody likes a story. Everybody likes to hear a story. Jesus, if you check out the Gospels, told story after story. He called them parables. And he always told a story, and then he would make a spiritual application. You remember that? Now, I've learned that you guys like stories. And if I begin to see you fall asleep, I try to dig up a story and... Oh, you come awake. Many times you remember my stories, but you don't remember the spiritual application. (laughs) But that's another story. But I can tell you this. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, if you want to see somebody begin to think about uh, the Lord, tell them your story. Don't Don't preach at people. Tell them a story. Tell them a story about what God did for you, like Katie did. Tell that story, or tell a story of what God is doing in your life. Because I will tell you this, everyone will hear, everyone will listen to a story. In our passage, the story, however, the parable does not have a happy ending. In this um, 
chapter 5, we're going to come across six woes. Six things that were destructive for Israel and eventually brought the discipline and destruction of their culture upon them. These woes came about because, and it's listed here in verses 13 to 24, because my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. They didn't know how to do life as the people of God. They didn't know how to do life so that it gave that abundant life that comes with walking with the Lord. And why is that? Verse 24 will tell us. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of the hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They had turned away from the Lord. They didn't want to hear the word. They despised it. They rejected it. And because of that, they lived a life without knowledge and that life is characterized by the six woes that we find in our passage. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in the six woes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in verses 25 through 30 because basically it tells the story of what happened to Israel. Foreign nations were going to come and oppress them and overwhelm them. That happened to the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. with Assyria and in 586 with the southern kingdom with uh, the culture of Babylon. So we won't, we've already covered that several times in our study, so I won't belabor that point. But we're going to focus on the six woes and then make some practical comments that I hope will, you would find helpful. Now, whenever you read a passage in the Bible, you should always ask this question. What lesson is there here for me? No matter how obscure the passage is, you should always ask, how does this passage uh, apply to me? Where's the lesson? Is there a lesson here for me? In most cases, you can find. Now, I have to say, I've been reading in First Chronicles, the first six chapters, which is just a list of genealogies and names. And I kept thinking, what is in here for me? <laughs> Uh, and I had to read past just the genealogies of names. And believe it or not, there was something in there for me. So whenever you look at the word, you want to say, what's the application for me? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the six woes and then make some applications for us personally, but also perhaps, as you will very evidently see, that applies to our nation. So let's take at the look at the six woes. The first woe found in verses 8 through 10. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn surely many houses shall become desolate even great ones and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. The first woe is getting rich at the expense of others. Some were getting rich at the expense of others. And what this passage is talking about, the land that each family was given was to be theirs permanently. Now, they could rent it out, so to speak, for a period of time up to 50 years. But every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, 
their land was supposed to go back to the original family to which it was given. But what was happening in this day, the rich uh, were taking advantage of the poorer folk and they were buying the land permanently. It was theirs. It was never going to go back to the original family. And so the rich were getting richer and taking advantage of those who were struggling, who had to sell their land in order to uh, get by. And rather than renting it out, they were selling it and it was gone. Now, whenever you see something strange going on, there's always something you want to ask. How do I figure out what's really going on, whether it's in government or some organization? Here's the phrase you want to say, follow the money. <laughs> uh, follow the money. When you, when you, when you, if you follow the money, you'll come to really what's going on. They might say they're doing this, but if you follow the money, that's where it's going on. So their first woe is getting rich at the expense of others. Second woe, verses 11 through 24. Uh, excuse me, 11 through 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine, flute, and by wine. They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. They rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected, despised his word, and as a result, they were living a life centered on intoxication living a life centered on intoxication. I don't need to go on and on about that. That's very evident. Now, come November, the voters here in California will get an opportunity to vote on whether we're going to have a marijuana as a recreational drug here in California. Well, I'm praying that the uh, voters here in California uh, are intelligent but uh, the voting record mostly has proved that they're not. And hopefully some of us will be with knowledge if you take a look at what's going on in Colorado and the disaster that they're having because they voted in recreational use of marijuana. But essentially, that's what was going on. They had rejected the word of the Lord. They despised it, and therefore uh, it manifested itself in a life living centered on intoxication. Verses 18 and 19, we get to the third woe. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the Holy One draw near and come to pass that we may know it. The third woe, arrogantly giving in to sin and iniquity. Now, at first, when you read this, you say, well, what's going on here? What they were saying is, okay, you're saying that God is going to discipline us? You say God is going to judgment? Go ahead. Bring it on, God. Let's see your judgment. Let's see what you're going to do. Go ahead. Give us your best shot, God, because we're going to live our life as we want to. That's essentially what was going on. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about a similar thing. In the last days, mockers will come and say what? Where is the promise of his coming? You stupid Christians have been talking all about the second coming of Jesus, and we know that everything's going to continue on as it always has. No judgment, no judgment. Later on in that chapter, it talks, but they were ignorant of God's word. And it talks about the judgment that had come 
during the days of Noah. Arrogantly giving in to sin and iniquity. Look at verse 20, which is our fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Once again, I don't need to expand on that. Um, Just open the uh, paper every day. Turn on the news, and you'll see what used to be called good is now called evil, and what was evil years ago is now being called good. It seems like we're losing our, we're losing our way. Our whole cultural values and that which we believe for so long are being told that we're evil. And the word of God is evil. And the people of God are prejudiced and evil. That's what was going on. Because they rejected the word of the Lord and they despised his word and they were living without knowledge and they had perverted values. Vifwo, Vifwo, found in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The Vifwo, leaning on their own understanding. Leaning on their own understanding. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He'll do it. Now, why shouldn't we lean on our own understanding? Um, let me see if I can find it. Isaiah 55. Where is it? Here it is. Oh, here it is. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. For as high the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. Um, and also in... In a similar passage, it says, and I haven't been able to find it, that the heart is deceitfully wicked and sinful, and who can know it? Why shouldn't you lean your own, on your own understanding? Because you're a sinner, <laughs> and you make mistakes, and you do stupid things when you don't listen to the word of the Lord. It's really simple. One of the classic books in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is the book of Judges. You remember this theory of the book of Judges? They did good, then they did bad. They did good, they did bad. They did good, they did bad. They did good, they did bad. And the theme of the book of Judges is what? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There it is. Do not lean on your own understanding. You reject the word of God. You don't receive it. You live a life without knowledge. You find yourself making dumb Stupid decisions because you're leaning on your own understanding. The sixth woe, verse 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in drinking strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Six woe, subverting justice with, bri- with a bribe. This come in a combos with the second woe, a life centered on intoxication, but it goes further. Because their life was given to that kind of life, in order to get along, they had to bribe and do injustice. Subverting justice with a bribe. That was part and parcel of life. Now, all six of these woes come about 
in varying degrees, depending on how much you reject and despise the word of the Lord. Some of these will manifest themselves in your life, in my life, when we turn away from the word of God. Now, Paul has a similar list, but a much more expanded list. Um, it's almost like uh, Isaiah gives us the Reader's Digest version, but Paul gives us the full version. Let me read what he talks about. It's found in Galatians 5, but just listen. He says, Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And these are called what? The deeds of the flesh. Aha. Rejecting the word of God, leaning on your own understanding, these will begin to manifest themselves in your life. But wait, wait. There's more. But the fruit of the Spirit, which is accepting God's word, believing God's word, yielding to his word, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And so, in the parable of the vineyard, it says, the Lord was looking for good fruit, but he only found worthless fruit. He says in verse 4, what more was, uh, could I do for my vineyard? What more could I have done? When I expected it to produce good grapes, it produced worthless grapes. If we want to live a life of knowledge, producing good fruit rather than worthless fruit, deeds of the flesh, we need to pull away from rejecting and despising God's word and embrace it fully in our lives. Okay. So there's the six woes. What then can help. Allow me to make three comments. First comment. Jesus has an interesting take on the parable. Jesus uses this parable, but he takes it in a more expanded version. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And uh, I think we're going to show the scriptures on the overhead. Want to hear the pages turning in the Bibles? Come on. Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak them in parables. He's going to tell them a story. Everybody likes a story. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. And then he went on a journey. So Jesus takes the original parable from Isaiah 5, but he expands on it. Notice which way he goes with it. And I would like his interpretation, his explanation. He probably has a better handle on it than you and I. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another slave. 
They wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. They sent another. And that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some, killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vine vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builder rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared that the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Jesus takes his parable and he he applies it in a very unique way. Now, you see what he did? Remember? The owner sent some slaves to get some of the produce. Now, who were those, who were those people? Those were the prophets. So Jesus is making a, just expanding this tremendously. And it applies both to Israel and to us. So uh, the slaves that the owner sent were the prophets. Now, who was the son? Jesus. And what did they do to the son? They killed him. And so he's speaking to Israel. And he says, all these times I've been sending people to you over and over again, and you've rejected and killed them. And now the son is coming, and you're going to kill him. Jesus had said to the Israel, and especially to the leaders, he said, unless you know that I am he, you will die in your sins. What do you mean by that? Unless you know that I am he. Unless you know that I am the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Unless you accept me and embrace me. Judgment is coming upon you. And like I said, and they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Against Israel and his leaders. And surely judgment came upon them. But how does it apply to us? It applies to us because he's saying, if you want, good, if you want to be good fruit, if you want to provide good fruit in your life, you need to recognize that he is the Messiah. That he is the Lamb of God. That you need to open your life to Christ. He said to all of us, he says, I've come to give life and life more abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy, how? Read against the six woes. All those things will bring destruction on your life. Read Galatians chapter five. Good fruit comes with opening your life to Christ. That's the very first step in seeing good fruit in your life and not being, to use the Bible, worthless fruit. Worthless, living a life apart from real knowledge of how to do life in this world. Hmm. Okay, but wait, even as I said before, there's more. <laughs> I love those commercials, don't you? But wait, there's more. They'll give you twice, two, two of the emblems or whatever they're selling. But wait, there's more. 
Because Jesus speaks there that we need to open our lives. Surely that's justification. We need to open our lives. But wait, there's more because there's walking with Jesus, isn't there? There's that process where we become more and more like him. So Jesus has an interesting take in the parable for Israel, but he also has an interesting take for us. We need to start life. Life begins, real life begins with having Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, recognizing that he died for your sins, that he paid the penalty on the cross for your sins. Don't you love the new cross? Isn't this wonderful? It's really nice. Now, they have a thing there. They can change colors. You see that? And change colors. I was going to ask him if I, if I started to make a real strong point, begin to switch those colors, but I thought, no, that might be a little sacrilegious, so I didn't want to go there. <laughs> Recognize that Jesus on the cross died for your sins. Okay, that's first step. Wait, there's more. Okay. Now, I want to share an illustration of the struggle that we all have. The struggle that we all have. Because... From time to time, we see, we see perhaps some of those six woes being worked out in our own life in one way or another. Isn't that true? Let's see. Say, yes, Pastor Neil, that's true for me. And notice I'm saying, yes, congregation, that's true for me. I found a good illustration in a book called The Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice by Dallas Willard and Jan Johnson. The Renovation of the heart and daily practice. And I thought it was worthwhile enough to read to you and hope that you are as thoroughly convicted by it as I was. This is an illustration. He writes, Recently I learned that one of the most prominent leaders in an important segment of Christian life blew up. He became uncontrollably angry when someone questioned him about the quality of his work. This was embarrassing but it was accepted at the time. In this case, the one who had questioned him was chastised. That is a familiar pattern in both Christian and non-Christian power structures. What are we to say about the spiritual state of that leader? The same question arises with references to lay figures in areas of life such as politics, business, entertainment, or education who show the same failures of character while openly identifying themselves as Christians. It's an unpleasant to dwell on such cases, but they must be squarely faced. The sad thing when any individual fails is not just what he does, but also his heart and inner life that are revealed when he does it. We find out who he has been all along, what his inner life has been like, and no doubt also how he has suffered during the years before he was found out. What kind of person has he been on the inside? And what has been his relationship to God? The effort to change our behavior without inner transformation is precisely what we see in the current shallowness of Western Christianity. This is so convicting, you want to stop reading. But I progress. When we do things we later regret, especially when we do them publicly or are found out in some way, 
we often forge great intentions to change. It's possible the prominent leader mentioned earlier regretted his actions privately, but noticed that it was effective when the one questioning him was chastised. He was affirmed in his anger, and the pattern will continue. On the other hand, perhaps he kicked himself for losing his temper and asked God for the umpteenth time to change him. Such regret usually does not change us. And this book goes in in a very practical way to deal with that, but I'm not promoting the book, but rather I'm going to promote the book that you have in your lap because Second Peter gives us a very detailed answer. And so we want to we want to take a look at the reality presented in the Word in 2 Peter, and I'm going to ask you to ch- turn to that book also. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. Turn those Bibles pages. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Three thoughts. First, he talks about divine power. Divine power by which we're able to become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Let's take it one step at a time. Divine power. The Bible maintains that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4.13, I think. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we have the power to do what is written in this book. Now, Jesus, in his prayer to the disciples, you remember? He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's pretty simple. Now, Jesus, when he came, the first words that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, is present. He also says in one of the other passages, the kingdom of God is among you. So what is he saying? Now, we know the kingdom of God will be fully implemented at the second coming of Christ. So we're not talking about establishing the the kingdom by our own works. We're talking that in a small way, beginning in our personal lives and beginning with our church, that we can begin to make a small piece of the kingdom of God operate right here, right now. Is that not possible? That's what he's talking about. Do we have the vision rather than just kind of muddling through life, whatever. This is, you know, we're Christians and we're living in a sin world, well, whatever. I guess we just got to put up with it. No. That's not what he's saying. 
that we should be able, by his divine power, to begin to establish the kingdom of God. How does that happen? Second point. Notice it says, his precious and magnificent promises. Hmm. What's that? There it is. The word of God. He's given us these wonderful promises. Precious and magnificent promises. Empowered by his spirit. There's a transformation process. And this is where we get to this idea of becoming partakers of the divine nature. What's that? I can tell you this. He's not talking about our Mormon friends. That's not what he's talking about. We don't become gods. But we become partakers of the divine nature. Let me see if I can give my explanation of what that means. It means that rather than just outwardly and grudgingly doing what we know we should or outwardly and grudgingly doing what we think is the right thing to do, we get to a place where thinking with our minds and feeling with our hearts, we are acting like Jesus. Jesus! We're acting like Jesus! Not just, oh, I guess I, get it. I guess I go to the hospital and pray for that person. I, oh, I, guess, I guess I maybe should uh, stand up for abortion. I, oh, shoot, I don't like it, but I guess I got to do it. No! From our hearts, our minds, we're, we want to do it. We yearn to do it. Because if Jesus was here, that's what he would be doing. Isn't that true? So we become partakers of the divine nature. So naturally, it flows from us. How does that take place? It takes place by the power of his spirit in conjunction with his word. With his word in our lives. So we don't reject it. We don't despise it. It becomes number one. Number one in our life. Number one in our life. Oh, Pastor Neil, this is too convicting. I've got five more minutes and I'm going to finish. I want to read some passages to you, and I don't want you to turn to them. I just want you to lay quiet and listen to what the Word of God says to you and to me. I don't want to exclude myself here. Listen to the Word of God, and I'll give you the passage if you want to write it down, but just listen. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's Joshua 1.8. Next passage. I'm turning in my Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. 
which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Next passage. That was Psalm 1. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the heart are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Is that true for us when we, when we come to the word of God? Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's Psalm 19. Next passage, Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young woman keep, his way, keep their way pure? By keeping according to thy word. Thy word have I treasured, treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good, acceptable will of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be adequately trained for every good ministry. Finally, uh, back in 1 Peter, Peter tells and writes that we need to apply these things with all diligence. So here, here's, here's, here's what I want to tell you. That God has given us the power to begin to establish the kingdom of God. Not completely, not fully. That, has, that happens when Christ. But maybe in our family, maybe in our neighbor, maybe at work, maybe in, in our personal lives. But James says that we're to not only be hearers, but doers of the word. So in a very small way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as the word of God changes, transforms us, we begin to, in a small way, begin to take steps of faith. Begin to take a step of faith in establishing the kingdom of God. In doing, by the power of the Spirit, not just because you have to do it, because your heart has been changed. You begin to do what the word of God tells us to do. And we begin to see the six woes not to be part of our life. Galatians chapter 5, and the deeds of the flesh fall away. Okay. In conclusion, uh, 
Over the years, many of us have been dismayed when one of our heroes of the faith, one of the preachers, one of the men in Christian life, has had a moral failure or was like we read in this book. This man just blurted out and it was evident to all that there was a serious character flaw. And we've seen that, haven't we? And I don't want to name names. I'm not gonna, I could go on for about a half an hour and name names, but I'm not going to. But here's what we should rejoice. Here's what I'm rejoicing in. That my shortcomings and failures have not been made light. And how about you? Maybe that area in your life has not become made known to the congregation, made known to your family, made known in the public view. We should rejoice in that. And it's only by God's grace that that hasn't happened to you and to me as of man. Now, here's, I'll close with this. I keep saying I'm closing, and I'm not closing. I'll close my Bible there. I'm closing. Isn't it time we begin to move more and more in the direction of what Peter and Paul and Jesus tell us? Isn't it, isn't it time that you, that I, begin to move in that direction? Isn't it time that Calvary Chapel begin to move more and more in that direction? I think it is. The days are evil, the Bible says. The days are evil. I pray that all of us, include, including yours truly, would begin to take this word to our hearts. Pray with me, please. Lord, we... Um, We uh, find ourselves thoroughly convicted by what you say in your word about us. Maybe we think we should know better. Maybe for some, some of us who have been in the kingdom for so long, we should, we should know better. We should have known better a long time ago. Maybe some of us who are new in the kingdom, we need to know better. I pray that that would be true for each person that we'd hear the word of God and apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me this morning.